they did. Yeah. Um, I, uh, it was the kind of church whereby it was very liturgical, so um, I grew up saying the same words every week, and um, I think by the time I was 11 or 12, I'd memorised, I think, the Book of Common Prayer, the Common Communion Service. I didn't really know what it meant, but it was all in there. Um, I, I went to uh, a university, and the first thing I did on a Sunday was I went to church because that's what you do. Uh, I've just grown up in that habit. Um, and uh, I walked into a church, it was very, very different to what I've known before. It was very, um, there was lots of incense, there were lots of robes everywhere. I had no idea what was going on, so I was there for about five minutes when I left. And I thought, this is, if this is what that Christianity is like, it's not for me. And the thing that really helped me at university to make sense of all the stuff in my head was that I met Christians um, whose lives have been deeply shaped by the gospel, by, meet, by meeting the Lord Jesus. And, and as I met these people who, who had become Christians and were really living that out in the context of the university, I thought, okay, that, that makes sense. I can see how this stuff that I've been learning actually works itself out in our lives. It, it's not just about what you know, as important as that is. It's about a living relationship with the God who made us. Um, so that was, that's, and I've been trying to make sense of things ever since then. Thanks, Neil. That's wonderful to hear. The Lord's work in your life and just you know, everyone's journey is unique and we, we praise the Lord for that. You're, you're minister of St. Barnabas Wilson. Yes. Um, for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about that church, how long you've been there, some of the current sort of encouragements and challenges. Sure. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, so St. Barnabas Wilson is. Um, we're a church plants in uh, in Dalston, in Hackney, so I guess we're about, I don't know, a mile and a half to the east and the north of Clerkenwell. Uh, it's a church plants about 12 years old. Um, we're not a parish church, although we are part of the Church of England. Uh, and I've been there, it'll be four years in, um, in March, so in about a month's time. Uh, so the encouragements... Uh, you know, the, the thing that really encourages me very often is just seeing the way in which the gospel continues to shape people. I can't, in one of, uh, maybe in one of his letters, where Paul, the apostle Paul writes somewhere, the gospel is bearing fruit in you, in your lives. And to, to see that, from my perspective, is just so encouraging um, to people, that, that there are a small group of people committed to the gospel such that they will generously give their money, their time, their resources um, into a, a ministry that kind of looks fairly small, that looks fairly unimpressive in lots of ways, and yet people are deeply, deeply committed. And to see the gospel bearing fruit like that is, is hugely encouraging. Some of the challenges you uh, Some of the challenges, uh, we're part of the Church of England, um, so that's a challenge in all sorts of ways. Um, I think uh, just sometimes, uh, because we are quite small, that feels like it's quite hard work um, and there are often lots of things that we want to do that we just don't really have the resources to do mm -hmm. so kind of focusing in on what we are able to do well um, can feel like we've got to say no to a lot of stuff and actually quite hard. Well, we're hugely thankful for giving our time as we've done to come and speak to us we've chosen the theme of joy um, obviously it'll tell us a little bit more what that's all about but why did you pick that theme for this weekend? Uh, I'm tempted to say that I was in St. James Park on one day and I saw the word written up on the wall next to, <laughs> next to the window, but that's not, that's not quite true. Uh, a few reasons. Personally, uh, just thinking for me, uh, we'll talk a bit more about this. Um, I, I'm someone who's quite drawn to, to kind of being quite melancholic, um, to being quite kind of, downbeat's not the word exactly, but it's something like that, kind of personality-wise. So you read through the New Testament, and there's joy everywhere, and you kind of think, how do I make sense of that? Mm. Um, so hopefully we'll get into some of that um, over the course of the weekend. I think as well, just looking around at um, the current kind of state of where we are generally in our particular kind of cultural, historical moment in time, we live in an age of anxiety. Anxiety is just everywhere as we look around our world at the moment. And uh, as a church, to think we are actually ought to be characterised by joy rather than anxiety, um, it, it, that's going to be hugely striking and will stand out enormously. So helping us to root that, to think, okay, what does it mean to be a people of joy? Why, why should we be joyful? What have we got to be joyful in? 
how does that work? Um, I think that's super important. Um, as this church community, as a wider church, um, at the moment. So that's 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 why we're we're here. Sounds brilliant. Really excited. Let me pray for you. Thank you. Can you pray for us? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you've been doing in Matt's life, and family, and ministry, and placing upon his heart this theme of joy. And Father, we want to be people that are open to you, open to your word. Please give us humble hearts and minds and ears to hear what you have for us this weekend. Please be with Matt, please be through him, please point us to your word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may each and every one of us leave this session, every session, this weekend, with a deeper joy in the Lord. And we ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Amen. Okay. With this, if we could open our Bibles to Romans 5, uh, verses 1 to 11. So Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Rome. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, thanks be God. God. Great, thanks Mark, uh, very much. Friends, this is thinking about joy. Uh, and um, session one this morning, the joy of the Lord is my strength. As we begin, I'd like us just to take a moment uh, to answer two questions. Just personally, a moment of personal reflection. On your um, booklet, if you've got your booklet with you, you will see on, uh, on the uh, page, um, session one, you'll see a scale um, marked one to ten. Could you please, uh, firstly, uh, on this first scale, uh, just ask the question, uh, how joyful are you at the moment? Where are you on that scale? Mark yourself between 1 and 10. How joyful are you at the moment? And question two, on the second scale, how joyful should you be? How joyful should you be? I don't know. Um, 
faces and not coffeepot faces. And uh, uh, what, what he meant by that uh, was that uh, English teapots generally are, are quite kind of spherical and round. And English coffee pots, kind of typically, are, are quite thin and narrow. And so the preacher meant Christians should be people who kind of have teapot faces. They're kind of constantly smiling. Uh, with very big, broad grins on their faces. Pappy says that he went home and, and looked in the mirror and was profoundly depressed. <laughs> because he, I mean, if you ever see a picture of him, he's, he's definitely got a coffee pot face. <laughs> so um, uh, then he, he comforted himself eventually by realising that the preacher had mistaken a Christian character for bone structure. And bone structure isn't going to change until we're given new bodies. Some people are exuberant, life of the party type people. They can be relied upon for a good story and lots of laughs, and uh, they are always the life and soul of the party. And um, when some of us here rejoice in the Lord, we think we're being told, be like that person, and we think, but I can't. It's just not me. I, I don't have that kind of personality. I'm not that sort of person. So joy is only for those people who can kind of who are wired that way. But joy it is not the same thing um, as temperament. It's quite possible to have a very big personality, to have the most teapot-like face possible, and yet to be nearly devoid of joy altogether. At the same time, it's quite possible to have uh, the, the absolute definition of a coffee pot face, and yet be full of deep and lasting and abounding joy. Joy is not about personality. By the way, please don't spend the next kind of few hours worrying about whether you've got a teapot face or a coffee pot face. It's not about what your face looks like, I, I promise. Joy is available to everybody. Lastly, uh, joy is not the same as escapism. Here's the question that pops up at the start of the year, isn't it? Uh, what are you doing this year? Where are you going? What holidays have you got planned? What travel uh, have, have you got coming up? And, and for many people, we kind of believe that the secret to joy is um, about getting away from it all about leaving the stresses and the strains of life behind, getting out of the kind of mundane day-to-day -day rhythm and um, <coughs> unwinding somewhere, finding joy in a different place and with different rhythm. You could, kind of, you could call it joy as escapism, a mindset that sees kind of normal life, daily life, as a chore and a difficulty and a burden, and joy is found by leaving it all behind. Uh, on, on the night before um, he dies, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, uh, Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 15, we don't turn to it now, uh, but he says, I have told you this, that obedience will keep you, uh, keep you in my love, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. That's astonishing, not just to think that the joy of Jesus is going to be shared with his disciples, but that he is able to say that on the night before that he dies. So knowing what's about to happen to him, knowing what's coming up over the next 12, 24 hours, he's able to say, my joy will be in you. Which tells us that, that joy is not just about getting away from it all. Joy is not found in escaping. Joy is not going to the Garden of Gethsemane and thinking, you know what, I'll, I'll be going somewhere else. There'll be more joy to be found in a different place, unwinding and getting away from it all. Right in the midst of that moment, Jesus was concerned about joy. Three things that joy isn't. Let's talk uh, briefly, more positively, about what joy is and a, a, a definition for us. I'm going to flick uh, to Psalm 5 and verse 11. If you've got a Bible and you want to flick to Psalm 5, verse 11, that would be a help, but keep a finger in Romans 5, we'll be back there in just a moment. Psalm 5, verse 11. Uh, 
David uh, writes, Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favour as with a shield. Just notice what that uh, verse assumes about joy and joyfulness. Uh, it, it involves everything. So it involves every aspect uh, of David's being. He talks about gladness. Gladness is a, is, is a response that you have uh, to something good, receiving something good. When Wales won in 25 tries later on this afternoon against Scotland, I will be deeply surprised and also very glad uh, being um, Wales being at my team in the Six Nations. But notice it, it's not just about uh, emotions because he links gladness with love so that those who love you may rejoice in you. We know that, that love is deeper than just being an emotional response to something. And so David is linking gladness and love together, and he does all of that in Psalm 5, which is, if you look back to verse 1, a psalm of lament. And he's lamenting. That's where he begins in Psalm uh, 1. Consider my words, Lord. Uh, listen to my words. Consider my lament, which tells us that joy is not rooted in circumstances. David has got something deeper going on, a joy that isn't just about an emotional response to something, isn't just about circumstances, yet which delights his heart, which thrills him. Gladness, love. So I think I want to say, when I'm talking about joy, uh, joy it involves our feelings, it involves our emotions, but it isn't just about our feelings. Uh, it's more like a, a disposition, an attitude, an inclination of our hearts that will be lasting and going on, whatever else is happening in our lives. Uh, there's a quote from Gerald uh, uh, Packer, who I mentioned a moment ago. He writes, a joy is a condition that's experienced, but it's more than a feeling. It is primarily a state of mind. So I think that's pretty good. I think that captures what we're talking about when we're talking about joy. It's a, a disposition, uh, an attitude of your heart uh, that includes your emotions um, but kind of goes deeper. It isn't just a response to what's going on around you. Let's take a, a couple of minutes, two, three minutes, just to uh, work through um, some of those discussion questions just uh, around our table. You might need to break into smaller groups uh, if you've got lots of people on your table. Three questions on your handout. When you think about joy, what comes to mind? Uh, how do you, or how did you react when you discovered the theme for the weekend? Uh, and joy is a disposition. That's that's fine. And you won't have time to go through all three of those. Then pick one and. Uh, just uh, reflect for uh, two minutes and then we'll come back together.
I think the answer is uh, basically because the default setting of the human heart is to see God as less than that. To believe that he isn't really the source of all life and joy, but that underneath it all, uh, he is mean-spirited and can't be trusted. Flip back with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. So, uh, going back right to the beginning of the whole Bible story, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 15 and 16. Uh, God has um, placed Adam and Eve in uh, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delights, the Garden of Joy. And this is what he says to them. Uh, he says uh, to Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then if you uh, go on down to uh, chapter 3 and the conversation that takes place between the serpent and uh, uh, Eve, uh, with Adam standing right there by her side. Uh, the woman said to the snake in verse 2 of chapter 3, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God would say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open." And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. To see God as less than he is, is the sin that's underneath every other sin. So when they're in the garden, the serpent says uh, to Eve, well, God has said to you, you must not eat the fruit um, of the tree, but it, it's not true. So the serpent directly contradicts uh, what God has said, but notice the strategy that the serpent employs. When God gives that command in chapter 2, when he says to Adam and Eve, uh, don't eat from the fruit of the tree, he, he doesn't give a reason. He doesn't say to them, oh, he says you will surely die, there's a consequence, but he, he doesn't say why they shouldn't eat from the, uh, from the, uh, the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. In, in other words, God is asking Adam and Eve uh, to take him on trust. He, he's asking them to trust that he is the God who really knows what is best for them, that he knows what is good for them, that, that he can be trusted in what he tells them, that he knows what he's doing. And that's the thing that the serpent goes after. The serpent says to Adam and Eve, actually, you, you can't trust him. You can't trust his love for you. You can't trust that he has your best interests at heart. He knows that when you eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be like him. And he doesn't want that for you. So you, you, you cannot be trusted. You are on your own. You can't trust his purposes, his plans, his love and his care. And that lie has passed down into every human heart. Sinclair Ferguson is a, a Scottish pastor and writer, and he tells a story to illustrate um, what's going on um, uh, at this point in Genesis 2 and 3. He says, uh, imagine a, a father takes his son into a, a, an amazing toy shop. They go into Hamleys together, and they walk all around Hamleys, and uh, the son, has kind of, his eyes are, are popping at all the amazing toys that there are in Hamleys. So there's a uh, you know, there's a remote-controlled car, and um, there's a, a Lego Death Star, and uh, all the most amazing toys that, that you can think of. And, and the little boy can't believe it. His eyes are kind of popping with excitement. He's kind of so uh, excited by all that uh, he can see. And they get to the end of their walk around Hamley's toy store, and the father turns to his son and says, Do you know why I brought you here today? The reason why I brought you here today is that so you know you're not going to have any of this. Not all of it. None of it. I won't buy a single thing for you. Now let's go home. Sinclair Ferguson says that that's what each one of us, in our hearts, deep down, believes about God. That we 
do you understand what God is like and improve you? Affect the way in which you do all of those sorts of things. Two minutes um, just to talk, and then uh, I'll call us back together. Christopher Hitchens ran a million miles from. How do we know that, that God is uh, full of life and joy and abundant love and mercy? Second thing for us to see this morning, and more briefly, rejoice in God. Secondly, rejoice in the gospel of God. Rejoice in the gospel of God. Now, uh, in Romans chapter 5, uh, these few sentences present the gospel to us in glorious technicolor. And they tell us that it's only the gospel, it's only the gospel that could possibly show us what God is like, and only the God that we've been thinking about who would possibly act in this way. I want to take verse 8 of Romans chapter 5 as the summary. Uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Through uh, Romans uh, chapters 1 to 3 of uh, the letter, uh, Paul has been gradually building his arguments uh, that we are enemies of God through our sinful refusal to trust him, uh, which means um, we are people who by nature are under his wrath, that um, not uh, just an angry, uh, unpredictable lashing out, but God's settled judicial opposition to everything that belittles his glory and tarnishes his creation. And yet it was precisely when we were still sinners that Christ died for us. The scandal of the gospel is that Jesus Christ gives his life not for worthy people, not for people who have got some inherent degree of um, moral goodness uh, that he should die for them. But actually, it's what he ought to have done. The scandal of the gospel 
is that he stands in our place, that he faces the condemnation that we deserve, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And here's how that produces joy. Firstly, it shows us the extent of our predicament. Now, I looked at um, from the outside. You can see how uh, it, it kind of sounds awful, doesn't it? If, if you say to someone, uh, I don't know, in your workplace or in your school or uh, wherever it is that you spend your Monday to Friday, that uh, we are by nature enemies of God and, and we need Jesus to stand in our place, that, that will go down like a lead balloon. Uh, looked at from the, uh, from the outside, it, it sounds awful. Polly Toynbee's a, a Guardian columnist. A few years ago, she wrote an article just before Easter um, in which she said, of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Did we ask him to? And Christians say, no, of course we didn't ask him to, and that's why it's so glorious and wonderful. Uh, he did. Uh, because from the inside, we begin to see the size of our debts and the extent of the danger that we were in before, the magnitude, the impossibility of trying to pay God back ourselves or make things right by ourselves or, or cover our sins over by ourselves, relying entirely on ourselves. The gospel shows us the magnitude of our danger and our debt. And second, it shows us the depths of God's love for us, that this is what it costs for us to be reconciled to him, that there was no other way, there was no other way that we could be made right with a holy God, and yet Jesus gladly walked that way. I heard someone say recently, I can't remember where, um, but uh, uh, that um, there's only ever been one instance in the whole history of uh, humankind. There's only ever been one instance of innocent suffering in the history of the world. And he volunteered for it. Charles Spurgeon was a, a Baptist pastor and preacher in the 19th century. Uh, and he used to say, Whenever we gaze at the cross, we ought to be constrained to say, does he love me more than he loves him? That he would give him for me. Friends, if, if we're unsure about God, if we've arrived this weekend feeling that God is the, a very long way away, that he's a distant being in the sky, who we need to um, kind of do the right things to get him on side, if that's our view of who God is, if we're unsure about his purposes for us, about whether we really can trust him in the middle of difficult times and things that are going on in our lives, the place to go is the cross. The cross assures us that whatever might be going on, he loves us. Whatever might be going on, he wants to bring us back. He wants to bring us home. He wants us to know that we are his dearly loved sons and daughters, that he is our precious heavenly father. So that's my prayer and my hope for this weekend. Let me close with one final um, uh, illustration. In um, John Bunyan's story, um, Pilgrim's Progress. There's a, a scene at the end of the second book uh, where Pilgrim's wife, Christiana, uh, is journeying from the city of destruction to the heavenly city. And just before she arrives at the heavenly city, uh, she sees someone standing kind of outside the gates of the city holding a rake in his hand. And what he's doing is he's searching um, in the kind of muck and the dirt uh, looking for something that he's lost or something uh, that will kind of enrich his life, something that will give him some kind of sense of purpose and hope and joy. And he's raking really hard, and, and he's only kind of gazing down at the muck as he's kind of searching really hard. And because he's only looking down, uh, he doesn't see that standing outside the gates of the heavenly city, there is another figure 
standing before him, holding out a crown of gold. It's a picture for John Bunyan of Jesus himself holding out the blessings of the gospel, peace with God, reconciliation, hoping in the glory of God. And friends, the the cross assures us of this. It assures us that his purposes are better towards us than we can possibly dare to imagine or hope or dream. Because if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more will we be saved through his life? So we rejoice in God, in this God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let me pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your astounding, astonishing love and grace towards us. Thank you that you are the God who is abundant in grace and mercy. Thank you that you have shown us all of that in and through your Son, in his coming into the world so that he might die for us, so that we might be rescued and restored and made known. Thank you that you are that God. And we pray that as we gaze upon you, as we gaze upon the gospel, as we understand all that you have done for us in and through your Son, our hearts would be glad and would rejoice. In his name we pray. Amen.